My kingdom hath been stolen! I returned to Adrasan earlier this week to find that my kingdom of Shambhala has a new king. Our shore-based crewmate has taken up the mantle and been crowned. However, upon seeing their former sovereign, the people of Shambhala rebelled against this usurper and once again crowned me king of Shambhala. Thus, I made my triumphant return. The, the people of Shambhala have since begun referring to my crewmate simply as Princesa. He is not nearly as amused by this as I am. Welcome back to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Dana Levin. What you're about to hear is a record of my experience as part of the Institute for Nautical Archaeology's expedition to excavate the Western Antalya wreck. This merchant ship sank over 4,000 years ago during the mid to late Bronze Age, while carrying cargo likely from the island of Cyprus to unknown ports in the northwest. Over the next two months, we'll follow these experiences as they were recorded in real time, edited only for sound quality to protect the identities of participants and the location of the wreck itself. You know those imaginary childhood games where you build a couple of Lego ships and then send them on some mysterious mission to explore an unknown artifact somewhere, and then create all sorts of stories surrounding them? No? Well, maybe that was just me. Either way, I had a moment yesterday where I looked over at the other ship floating nearby with a couple of crew members gathered over some pictures and charts on the aft deck table. I had just come up from the water and was in the process of removing and securing my own dive gear and we'd spent the day rearranging a set of air pipes connected to an underwater vacuum system called an airlift. When we secured each of these with weights at the middle while fixing floats to the pressurized line so that they would be suspended over the wreck and not lying on top of the artifacts. The site now looks like an excavation on an alien planet somewhere, and on some level it kind of is. But that moment, after returning to the surface while taking off my spacesuit and looking across at the other crew, gave me a bit of a realization. I actually am the ship's doctor on a mission to uncover the secrets of a mysterious ancient wreck, and either I've never actually grew up and I'm still playing those games, or I've finally grown into the kind of life that I'd imagined since I developed an imagination. The only difference now is that the ships are not made of Legos, and I don't have to clean them up off the dining room table at the end of the day. It was a very interesting thought. July 20th. Occasionally, during resupply days, one ship has to stay at the wreck site to guard our lines, chains, and other equipment from local fishermen who like to steal them. This has happened twice now, and the Turkish Coast Guard has agreed to make regular flybys of the area to help us keep an eye on it. On the latest resupply, I returned to shore aboard the Virazon 2 to await the delivery of chains and lines to replace the ones that had been stolen, but the delivery was delayed, so I agreed to stay an extra day and wait for them. There is very little to do in Adrasan, but it's a pleasant Mediterranean climate, and there is the nearby sea and decent food. Mostly, I set myself up in a shaded outdoor eatery and lounge area, and caught up on various projects I have. Honestly, it's not a bad way to spend time. The only challenge is coordinating, since there's no cell phone service on site, and so limited ability to communicate with the expedition once they leave port. I did receive a text message via satellite phone about halfway through the day, though, saying that Archeo would be back that night to meet me in the morning at the inn and help carry two long chains and two dock lines. So, after finishing up a revision of my research on spatial disorientation, I headed back to the site aboard Archeo. I learned that the ship is a former fishing trawler, only converted to serve as an archaeological research vessel two years ago. The captain, however, had been with the ship over 25 years. 
Initially, I had planned to eat breakfast with the Virazon 2 crew, but the Turkish archaeologists insisted that I eat with them while underway, which gave me some time to get to know them and the Turkish crew better. The leader of the Turkish archaeological group handed me a photograph of what looked like a 3cm ceramic turtle shell. It was a tiny circular bowl with hash marks on the outside and a smooth surface within. Now, to me, this looked like absolutely nothing significant beyond the fact that it was probably made by humans long ago. To the archaeologist, however, it's one of the first pieces of evidence of boats designed to cross between islands carrying trade goods. Apparently, the key was they needed to build something that was large enough to carry passengers or goods and was also capable of keeping both dry. While the small canoes built by many cultures are good for fishing and transporting very small amounts of people, they can't reliably keep things dry and they can't handle large cargo, at least not the ones in the Mediterranean. There are absolutely canoes I've seen that look like they could do this, like the huge one on display in the Museum of Natural History in New York City, or the large catamarans made by seafaring cultures like the Phoenicians. However, I'm fairly sure that those were much later inventions. This object is from the Neolithic period in the Mediterranean, something like 12 to 15,000 years ago. At the time, in the late Stone Age, communities were spread across the Mediterranean, building wattle and daub settlements, and apparently lived in both the mainland as well as on islands within sight of the shore. These structures involve making a frame from large branches driven into the ground and then tied into something that resembles a basic-looking house. This frame would then be given walls made of weaving twigs and smaller branches together and then sealed with a dried mud-clay leaf insulation. Finally, they topped the whole thing with a woven roof sealed with leather or large leaves. Later innovations involve making terracotta roofing and siding tiles and creating more waterproof, more permanent structures. This is very similar to the Neolithic construction style in Northern Europe, specifically the community that lived in and built the early versions of the complex we now call Stonehenge. And in fact, some of these people may have learned the technique in the Mediterranean and taken it with them. There are some really fascinating YouTube videos about this process, including one where an Australian man uh, makes videos of himself building one of these structures completely from scratch. But that's a distraction. We're talking about boats. And this tiny thumb-sized bowl is apparently a representation of the same technique applied to ship construction. The builders made large woven baskets and then covered them with animal leather to make it waterproof. You can't really use the dried mud approach in water because when you stick it in the ocean it has a tendency to fall apart. But leather was something these cultures knew how to make as well, and they could fasten that leather sealant together with ropes that would give it a hatch-marked appearance that this bowl displays. This type of vessel is still in use in some areas of the world today, and it works well enough for short trips over calm water when propelled by simple oars. This means that people already had some form of sea-based intercommunity trade literally tens of thousands of years ago. We've been exploring and traveling for a very long time. It makes sense, though. We were building cities back then. We had proto-civilizations, as in multiple communities that appear to follow similar sets of cultural norms. We had monuments, we had the need to transport large quantities of stone and food between points, so why not have rudimentary cargo ships? Taken a step further, leather is waterproof, but it's also windproof, and it's not such a leap to imagine using a square piece of leather held between oars as a rudimentary sail to take advantage of a steady wind and help people travel a bit more easily and maybe a little faster. I imagine this because centuries later, this leather over a lightweight skeleton was used in windmills. Millennia later, when we needed to build other lightweight structures to capture wind, we modified the technique again 
building a skeleton of wood and stretching a skin over it to enable us to fly. On some level, even the lunar lander used a mylar skin stretched over a metal skeleton. It's probably not possible to know if the earliest people to employ this technique ever thought it might someday carry them into the air and beyond, but who knows? People haven't changed that much, and we are at least as creative and imaginative today as we were then. Even before writing, early art depicts humans traveling through the air. Maybe somewhere in the world there was a forgotten Leonardo da Vinci or a pair of siblings who tried to build a woven bird and used it to glide from sea cliffs over the ocean. Maybe it wasn't siblings, but rather a parent and child team. Maybe they were imprisoned on a small Mediterranean island and used their contraption to escape it. Maybe it was only partially successful, with one managing to safely glide all the way to shore and the other falling into the sea and drowning. And then maybe years later, someone wrote down their story and gave them names like Icarus and Daedalus. Maybe. Or maybe not. Either way, there's little harm in dreaming about the possibilities. Back to the future, our cook quit. Apparently, he had some personality differences he could not reconcile. Now, I hadn't expected there to be a cook at all, so I have no problem volunteering to cook a few meals if needed. But after some brief discussion, we ended up hiring a new cook from Archeo's crew. He's also a guitar player who owns a club in Istanbul. Now, I don't mean to be obnoxious, but our food has significantly improved since then. And it's an interesting concept to have this division of labor. I'm not part of the crew staffing decisions at all, but I will say that having a dedicated cook ensures that everyone on diving or cataloging duty can focus on that and not have to worry about delays for eating and cooking and cleaning. It also does wonders for morale, and it's been a common trait of many previous expeditions, so it's not that unusual in this type of world. July 19th. Tonight, we continue a time-honored high seas tradition, one meant to ease tensions and bring people of different backgrounds together on long journeys. We held a concert. Our new cook is a guitar player, and since he moved over to our ship, this has given us time to practice a bit. So tonight, he and I went over to Archeo for tea. They set up an impromptu stage under the stars on the aft deck, and we sat down with a guitar, an empty water jug, and a list of lyrics. We even got the Turkish audience singing along with songs like We Will Rock You and Imagine. I, I think my favorite moment, though, is that we actually got people up and dancing to hit the road jack, which meant that we had to instigate a mini swing dancing lesson while singing the song. This was happening while the crew of Virazone 2 watched a downloaded movie in the conference room. Now, there are days where I much prefer Virazone 2's attitude towards this expedition, but this was not one of those days. After the show, we did a bit of stargazing, where I pointed out how to use Ursa Major, the Big Dipper, to locate Polaris and a few other key constellations. We pointed out the Milky Way and watched our planet lazily spinning around the immense central galactic gravity well of supermassive black holes at millions of miles an hour. We looked at the planets, or at least at Saturn, which was the brightest object in the night sky other than the moon, and we drank Turkish coffee, and one of the students promised to tell me my fortune based on the coffee grounds. We never got around to it, though, so my future remains shrouded in mystery. July 21st. I put myself back on dive duty. There were mild setbacks as we discovered that physics and resistance and airflow are real things. Basically, we have four airlifts. These are 10-meter-long, 15-centimeter-diameter PVC pipes with an air hose at one end and a float positioned at the other. The goal is to have these pipes hang at about 45 degrees in the water with the air pipe end near the seafloor and the float hanging in the open water, secured by a weight in the middle. When you turn the air pipe on, it releases air into the PVC column. This air then rises and expands as it goes up towards the shallower depths within the pipe, creating a vacuum. 
This vacuum allows divers to clear away silt and debris from the excavation site without clouding the water, and also creating small piles of debris that can then be sifted through later. In this way, we're able to clear away the millennia of sediment from the wreck site. We've positioned two of these airlifts in 36 meters of water and two at 46 meters, but all of them were connected to the same manifold and fed by a single compressor. So if the two upper ones were open, then the lower one gets no airflow because, well, physics. This is quite predictable, but also a very easy thing to overlook. Fortunately, though, it's not hard to fix. It just means we have to adapt ourselves to only operate two airlifts at a time. Everyone still seems to be relatively happy and enthusiastic, though. There's a clear dynamic that's established where the mix of personalities helps dilute any individual frustrations that appear. There are some people that seem to annoy everyone a little bit, but there are also a few people that seem to be able to bring everyone together. And those are the people that are really valuable in expeditions like this. It's worth paying attention and learning from them. July 23rd. As for the more medical type work to be done, much of it has been advocating for improved safety on board. There have been some breaches of dive plans on the part of the Turkish students following computer profiles, a lot of slippery footwear on wet surfaces, loose items on the med station preventing rapid access to emergency gear, and other things of that nature. There are always plans that don't work, unexpected circumstances, complacency, and accidents that add risk back in. That's why you bring a doctor. And I have no problem with that, nor do I have a problem with dangers brought on by ignorance. We all need to learn, and we all start out not knowing what we don't know. These things are common, and that's why it's worth controlling the risks that you can control. Minimizing those risks means that you leave room for the ones you can't. Fortunately, our expedition leader has already called a meeting to address these concerns. And initially there was some concern that the students might not understand what I was telling them, and that cultural differences meant they'd never listen, or while this is a legitimate fear, it's also one that any practitioner should be prepared for. Being a doctor also makes you kind of a teacher, figuring out how to work with your quote-unquote students to transfer in knowledge in ways that make sense to them. Yes, there are differences, and I'm definitely no expert on Turkish culture, but advice like wear shoes with traction or use dive plans we give you because your computers may not prevent injuries are not hard to convey. I wrote out a series of points I wanted communicated and asked the expedition leader to convey these points to the students in Turkish and to the rest of the INA dive team. There is nothing particularly unique about what I wrote. They were basic things like don't enter the water for a dive unless you notify the surface teams, plan your dive before you get in the water and stick to the plan, trust your deco tables and use your computer as a backup because we are well outside of the assumptions built into the computer programs, and wear shoes with traction on deck or walk barefoot. Things like that but in a two-page, easy-to-understand document. I felt the meeting was effective, and, and people really did become a little more conscious of slippery surfaces and dive plans, though I'll admit it may have not been my advice so much as the slip and fall that resulted in one Archeo crew member that caused a broken foot and required a surgical repair. Uh, this crew member wore flip-flops on the slick, wet surface of the deck and slipped. It was the fifth fall-related injury on the ship in three weeks, but sending a crew member to the hospital and resulting in surgery makes it a very obvious injury that's hard to ignore. Seeing something like that probably made people think a little more carefully about walking with slippery shoes on the deck. But I'm still going to take some credit. And that's what I got for this entry, so thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. 
please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. We'd also love it if you would subscribe to our email list so we can update you directly when we post a new episode. Special thanks to our production team, Sultana Pefley, Jeremy Seeker, and Emily Stratton. Music is written and recorded by David Keel. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at explorationmedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.